please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. Let me read those verses for us. Beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may our gracious God bless the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. Well, in our passage this morning, we reach the climax and the end of the first half of the gospel of Mark. Originally, I had intended to preach from chapter 8, verse 27, all the way to chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, but midweek, I was persuaded uh, that these few verses, this climax to the first half of the gospel, demand their own sermon. These verses are central to the story of the whole Bible. They are crucial to understanding what's going on in Mark. And they are so important to having a right view of our own lives today. I'm going to ask you to work hard with me this morning, especially in the first half of the sermon. I'm going to throw a lot at you, so please stay with me. Got three points this morning. Each point is a complete sentence. I'll give each of them to you as we progress. A first point this morning. The Old Testament promises a spirit-anointed deliverer and king. Let me say it again. The Old Testament promises a spirit-anointed deliverer and king. I want us to see this morning that this promise is not some minor thing that we find tucked away only in a few cryptic prophecies. This promise is the climax toward which the story of the Old Testament builds from the beginning. The story of the Bible begins the story of mankind in the Garden of Eden. In Eden, God is king, Adam rules under him, and everything is very good. But by page two of the Bible, mankind has rebelled against God and been exiled from his good garden kingdom. And outside God's kingdom, mankind finds, we find, don't we, that we live in a world of sufferings, of frustrations, of tragedies. We live in a world plagued by sin and guilt and death. We find ourselves surrounded by problems that are too big for us to solve. And so, from the first book of the Bible, we begin to see that a merciful God sends His people spirit-empowered deliverers to rescue them from the problems that are too big for them. 
And so we see this first in the life of a man named Joseph. In the days of Joseph, God's people have a serious problem. They're faced with a worldwide famine. So God raises up Joseph to a place of global influence so that through Joseph's wise administration of the resources of Egypt, God's people and people from all nations are saved from starvation. Well, here's what you need to note. The author of the book of Genesis in chapter 41 points out to us that when Joseph is standing in front of Pharaoh, as he articulates the plan that's going to save the world quite literally, this is what Pharaoh says. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? The narrator of Genesis notes that specifically because he wants us to see that Joseph is able to deliver God's people from their big problem because he is empowered and given wisdom by God's Holy Spirit. The pattern continues. The next big deliverer in the Bible is a man named Moses. Moses delivers God's people from all kinds of problems. Israel is enslaved. Moses delivers them. Israel doesn't have God's law. Moses mediates the giving of the law. Israel tends to stray from the Lord. Moses keeps bringing the people back to the Lord. Well, what is it that enabled Moses to be such an effective and powerful deliverer of God's people? It's because Moses was empowered by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit gave Moses the wisdom, the courage, the righteousness, the perseverance, the divine help to be their deliverer. In the book of Numbers, chapter 11, God commands Moses to delegate 70 elders for the people of Israel so that they can share the burden of dealing with Israel's problems. And this is what God says to Moses in Numbers chapter 11. He says, Moses, this is why these 70 men are going to be qualified to rescue Israel from their problems. Because I am going to take some of the spirit that is on you, Moses, and put it on them. And as they too are anointed and empowered by God's spirit, they will be able to deliver, to help, to lead, to guide my people. Well, the time approaches for Moses to die. So Moses asks God to raise up in his place a single leader for the people of Israel. And God responds to Moses' request like this. He says, Moses, Numbers 27, verse 18, he says, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom there is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Joshua will have the courage, the wisdom, the integrity to lead and deliver the people of God because God's Spirit is with him to empower him. Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. He wipes out all of their Canaanite problems. And as long as Joshua lives, Israel remains faithful to the Lord. But when Joshua dies, very quickly God's people swerve into sin and rebellion. In fact, it begins to seem like swerving into sin and rebellion is actually the biggest problem that God's people have. So God gives Israel over to their enemies, but when they cry out to him because of their problems that are too big for them to fix, in his mercy, 
God raises up a series of spirit-empowered deliverers. You might know these people as the judges, whose stories are told in the book of Judges. So the first judge that God raises up is a man named Othniel. Let me just advocate that Othniel is a way underused Christian biblical baby name. In Judges chapter 3, as we're introduced to Othniel, the first judge, we're told this, the spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. God's spirit empowers Othniel to lead Israel back to God, uh, to judge them in righteousness and obedience, and to defeat their enemies. Later in the book of Judges, we read about the story of Gideon, because as great as Othniel was, he died. After he died, Israel strayed, and later God raised up a judge named Gideon. We're told in that story about how the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, so that this formerly timid man became the leader of the armies of Israel and delivered them from their problems. But then Gideon dies. And later we read the story of the famous Samson, who delivers Israel from the Philistines with his superhuman strength. Three times in the story of Samson, we are told that the source of Samson's great strength is that the Spirit of God would rush upon him and empower him to deliver Israel from the enemies too strong from them. But if you know his story, you know that Samson, although he's very strong, also struggles with quite a sin and rebellion problem of his own. And then he dies. So the book of Judges ends with the people of Israel drowning in problems. Problems of anarchy, problems of unrighteousness, problems of immorality, problems of ignorance, even problems of civil war. And so after the book of Judges ends... God begins to unfold a plan that will lead to a more lasting deliverance from God's people's problems. In short, God gives his people a good, spirit-anointed king named David. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read that when God chooses David to be king, God has Samuel, his prophet, anoint David with oil. In the Bible, being anointed with oil is often a picture of one's need to be anointed or filled. To anoint just means to pour over or to smudge. So being anointed with oil is a picture of being filled or empowered by God's spirit to do the job that he's calling you to do. And in David's case, the anointing with oil and the anointing with the Spirit happen together. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13 says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Times are good for Israel under King David because... God's Spirit gives King David the wisdom, the courage, the faith, the zeal to deliver Israel from all kinds of problems. David defeats the Moabites and the Philistines and the Syrians and the Ammonites. David leads God's people in the right worship of Yahweh. David models 
godliness and devotion to the Lord, except when he too is struggling with his own massive sin and rebellion problem. And before David dies, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, God promises David that one of his descendants will reign as the spirit-anointed king forever. In this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says that this descendant of David, this forever king anointed by the Spirit, will not only be the son of David, God says that he will also be the son of God. From that point forward, the rest of the Old Testament story is focused primarily on the descendants of King David, the kings of Israel who are anointed with oil. And the great tragedy of the Old Testament is that most of these kings, although anointed with oil, don't really seem to have very much to do with God's spirit. Even the best of these Old Testament kings, the descendants of David, struggle mightily with their own sin and rebellion problem. Their stories are told in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Most of their stories go something like this. King so-and-so reigned for so many years in the land of Israel, and he was terrible. He did not love the Lord like his father David. Then he died, and his son also terrible, reigned in his place. I'm being a little silly, but that's basically the gist of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. While these terrible kings are sitting on David's throne, we're looking at God's promise to David and saying, good grief, when is the anointed son of David, son of God, going to come and deliver God's people from all of their problems? I am not seeing him in these kings sitting on David's throne. And so to strengthen the faith of his people, while these terrible kings are ruling, God reiterates his promise to David through the prophets. Think of the passages that Gail read for us earlier from Isaiah Look back at that promise from Isaiah 11 in your bulletin for just a moment. That promise starts like this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is David's father. Oh no, a shoot from the stump of Jesse? We've seen those guys. They're terrible. But what about this guy? It says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We went to Isaiah in our Old Testament reading. We could have gone to Micah. We could have gone to Daniel. We could have gone all over the Old Testament to see God reiterating the promise to his people that he will send a spirit-anointed king and deliverer to deliver his people from their problems forever. As the Old Testament ends, none of David's descendants have fit that bill, but the prophetic message is loud and clear. God will send the anointed one to rescue his people from the problems they can't solve. Now, why in a sermon on the gospel of Mark, 
chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, have I been talking for 15 minutes now about a spirit-anointed king and deliverer, right? You don't even see the word spirit in this passage. Do you know what the Hebrew word for anointed is? It's the word Messiah. Do you know what the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah is? How do you say anointed one in Greek, the language of the New Testament? Christ. If you're taking notes, back at the top of point one where you have written, the Old Testament promises a spirit-anointed deliverer and king. Lightly cross out spirit-anointed deliverer and king and write Christ. That is what the Christ means. And we spent time here this morning because I want you to see that the Christ is not just some random figure that gets predicted in a few select passages of the Bible that we read at Christmas time. From the beginning of the Bible, God has been outlining the contours of the Christ. He has been stoking our longing for the forever king and deliverer empowered by God's spirit to rescue us from all our problems, to bring us back to his garden kingdom. That's point number one. The Old Testament promises a spirit-anointed deliverer and king or a Christ. Second point. The first half of Mark's gospel, and by that I mean Mark chapter 1 verse 1 to Mark chapter 8 verse 30, demonstrates Jesus is that Christ. The first half of Mark's gospel is an argument that Jesus is that guy. Now, that might sound totally unsurprising to us, but you have to realize how astonishingly big this news was for Mark's original readers. Imagine that this morning I got up and identified someone in public life in America, some public celebrity or politician or someone that everyone knows. And I said, today, I am going to argue to you that this person is the Antichrist, right? You'd be like, whoa, okay. First, I'm not entirely clear what the Antichrist is. Second, you are going to need a lot of Bible arguments to convince me that this guy is the Antichrist, right? That's how big the news was to Mark's original hearers, that this guy Jesus, this guy Jesus that we know was crucified, is the Christ. And Mark knows that the lawyer who tells the best story wins. And that's what Mark 1, 1 to 8.30 is. Right out of the gate, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark tips his hand. He tells us his thesis. What does Mark chapter 1, verse 1 say? It says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's opening line is, listen, I'm about to tell you that Jesus is the spirit-anointed deliverer and king we've been waiting for. Let me argue my thesis to you for eight chapters. 
What's the first story in Mark's gospel? It's about John the Baptist. What's the second story in Mark's gospel? It's the baptism of Jesus. What happens at the baptism of Jesus as he comes up from the water? Jesus is anointed or filled and empowered by none other than God's Holy Spirit. And as he is, a voice sounds from heaven, God's own voice. And what does this voice say? Except that you, Jesus, are my son. You are not only David's son, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. The anointed son of David, son of God, is on the scene. That's how Mark starts. And throughout his narrative, Mark shows us Jesus' display of his kingly or his Christly authority. When Jesus teaches, people marvel that Jesus doesn't teach like a learned scribe. He teaches with authority. He teaches like he's in charge. He teaches, you might even say, like a king. Jesus, in Mark, shows off his spirit-empowered kingly authority over illness as he heals the sick, over demons as he casts out the unclean spirits, over death as he brings the deceased back to life, over sin as he grants forgiveness. And the picture begins to emerge. Jesus has come to deliver God's people from all the problems too big for them to solve. Mark shows us that Jesus demonstrates that he is the son of God, in a sense, way bigger than David would even have imagined, by showing us that Jesus does what only God does in the Old Testament. In Psalm 107, God controls nature with his words. Jesus controls nature with his words in Mark chapter 4. In the book of Exodus, God miraculously gives his people bread to eat in the wilderness. In Mark chapters 6 and 8, Jesus gives his people bread to eat in the wilderness through a public miracle. Isaiah told us that when God shows up to redeem his people, he would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, notwithstanding all the evidence that Mark has marshaled that Jesus is the spirit-anointed deliverer and king, Jesus, so far in Mark's gospel, has met with blindness. The only characters so far who have correctly verbalized the identity of Jesus are demons. Those are the only people, at least that Mark has recorded, who have correctly stated the identity of Jesus. Remember that toward the end of last week's passage, just 10 or so verses before the verses that we read this morning, Jesus has just been reproving his disciples for their failure to see. He says, having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? He says, don't you yet realize who I am? Well, all of this brings us finally to the beginning of our passage this morning. You thought we were never going to get there. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, we read there that Jesus and his disciples have traveled over to Caesarea Philippi. That is far north of Israel in Gentile territory. Jesus and his disciples seem to be seeking escape from public attention. 
Mark tells us there in verse 27 that on the way, Jesus takes a poll from his disciples. He asks them, who do people say that I am? Now, just imagine for a moment that after church, you and I go out uh, to lunch in the same group. And in the middle of the lunch, I sort of interrupt the conversation and I say, friends, I just wanted to ask you, who do people say that I am? Right? There, would, there would probably be a really awkward pause. And then someone would have the courage to say, well, you know, David, I hate to break it to you, but no one's really saying anything. The question of your identity is not much discussed in public discourse. It seems fairly obvious that you are quite a regular dude, right? Jesus, on the other hand, has done so many amazing public miracles that thinking people have felt the need to come up with different theories to explain who this unique guy is. And so the disciples tell us what people are saying there in verse 28. They say, well, Jesus, some people say that you are John the Baptist. Presumably, John the Baptist raised from the dead since John had died back in chapter 6. And we know that Jesus and John were both preachers of repentance and the kingdom of God. And so some people seem to have gotten them mixed up in their minds. The disciples say, some other people say that you are Elijah. And there are predictions in the Old Testament that before the Christ comes, Elijah comes to prepare the way. So some people think, hey, maybe this is the forerunner. Now, ironically, that's John the Baptist. And still others are saying that Jesus is one of the prophets. Maybe they mean he's sort of a new prophet, or maybe they mean he's one of the prophets from old, sort of sent back somehow. Notice, all of these opinions about Jesus are highly positive. All of these opinions about Jesus associate him with God in some sort of vague and positive way. But also notice, Jesus is not satisfied with any of these opinions about him. There in verse 29, Jesus makes the question personal. He says to his disciples, But who do you say? that I am. Well, given the disciples' track record, we're nervous about what might come out of their mouths. We wonder whether they've remained blind and deaf and hard-hearted. But there at the end of verse 29, Peter speaks the words that this entire first half of Mark's gospel have been driving towards. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the prophesied, spirit-anointed king and deliverer come to rescue God's people from all their problems. Peter's eyes have been opened. But no sooner has Peter spoken these words than shockingly, Jesus tells his disciples there in verse 30 not to tell anyone else about him. God willing, we'll see next week that the disciples' understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the, the Christ is still terribly partial. Read just a few more verses in Mark's gospel, and you'll realize that Peter, who nails it in verse 29, still doesn't get it in some really important ways. When Jesus starts to tell Peter, hey, Peter, I'm the Christ who needs to go to the cross, Peter's like, what? 
that, that can't be right. Jesus, you must have it wrong. Peter's eyes have been opened, but his vision is still very blurry. You remember last week that the passage immediately before these verses ends with the opening of the eyes of a blind man? And do you remember that unlike all of the other miracles in Mark's gospel, this miracle takes place in two stages. First, Jesus puts his hand on the blind man's eyes, and miraculously he can see. His sight is restored, but not completely. He says at first he sees people walking around and they look like trees. His sight is restored, but it's not yet fully restored. It's still very blurry. Seems like that blind man is a picture of Peter and of the rest of the disciples here. They've been given eyes to see Jesus is the Christ. But all that that means for his work and what it looks like to follow him is still very blurry in their eyes. Jesus commands his disciples not to tell anyone what they've understood just yet. But after his death and his resurrection, Jesus will command his disciples to herald to the whole world the message that he is the Christ. He is the spirit-anointed deliverer and king promised throughout God's Old Testament. That's our second point this morning. Third and final point actually a question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? From the prominence that Mark gives to this question in the structure of his narrative, friend, it's safe to say that Mark thinks there is no more important question than this in the entire world. Who do you say that this man Jesus is? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are so delighted that you've come this morning. You're very welcome to be here. We hope you feel welcome. Friend, listen. In his great love for you, the God of the Bible confronts you with this question above all other questions. Who do you say Jesus is? What is your explanation? What is your interpretation of this man? What do you make of this guy whom Mark and Matthew and Luke and John and Peter and the other disciples tell you performed thousands of public miracles and then rose from the dead? What do you make of that guy? Who is this person who divides history in half? Who is this man whom billions of people from all kinds of cultures and nations worship 2,000 years after he died? Who is this man who claims to be God's only solution to the problems you can't solve? Friend, Jesus claims that our biggest problem, the reason that we live in a world full of problems, is actually that we are guilty sinners against a holy God. Like Israel, like Samson, like David, we all have a big sin and rebellion problem. And the claim of Jesus is that his death on the cross as a substitute and his resurrection from the dead three days later are the only means that God has provided for fixing our sin and rebellion problem. Jesus claims that our big problem is that we are ruled by selfish 
sinful hearts. And you know what Jesus says that we need? Jesus says that we need to be filled and changed by the same Holy Spirit who empowered him for the life of obedience that pleased his father. In the book of Acts, after Jesus rises from the dead, one of the ways that Jesus is described again and again and again is as the one who, having died and risen, was glorified by God's Spirit and now pours out that same Spirit on all who trust in Him so that they might be good like He is good, godly like He is godly, so that just as He rose from the dead in eternal life, they too, after their death, might be raised by the same Spirit to eternal life. Friends, Jesus claims to be your only ticket back to God's eternal kingdom where there's no death, no suffering, no illness, no sin, no guilt. More than that, Jesus claims to be able to conquer your heart of rebellion. Right? Our big problem is that God is the all-satisfying, all-glorious source of life, and we don't like him. Jesus says that he can change your heart and draw you near to this God by the same spirit with which he was anointed. So friend, what will you do with this Jesus? Who do you say that he is? If you have questions about that, we'd be delighted to speak with you about that. Brothers and sisters, when you have opportunity to speak with others about the gospel of Jesus... It can often be helpful to talk about creation, to talk about apologetics, to talk about Christian sexuality, to talk about ethics, to talk about whatever. As soon as you can, get here. It's good to talk to people about their questions, but move the conversation toward Jesus Christ. Sometimes when people ask me about sort of weird things that Christians believe, one of the first things I say to them is, hey, you know what? I'm delighted to talk with you about that specific thing, but I just want you to know that the reason I believe that thing is because I have been convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. And so if it's just sort of a matter of your opinion versus my opinion, you know, you might be smarter than me. But if Jesus is the Christ, we should probably listen to him. Right? Drive toward this question, friends, who Jesus is. This is not only a question for evangelism. It's not only a question for apologetics. Christian, brother or sister, listen. The Christian life is living out your answer to this question. The Christian life is living out your confession that Jesus is the Christ. Part of the reason that I had planned, foolishly, to lump these verses in with the next section is because you already know who Jesus is, right? That's why you're in church. I was hesitant to hammer one more time on these themes and this application that Mark's gospel gives us again and again. Look at Jesus, see who he is. But Mark is not hesitant to hammer that point home because he knows we can't build a life of obedience bigger than our picture of Jesus, Mark knows that who you consider Jesus to be in your heart of hearts determines how you live. Mark tells us these events took place in a place called Caesarea Philippi or Caesarea Philippi. 
It's a town that had very recently been renamed after Caesar Augustus. Many of Mark's original hearers would be killed by Caesar for their confession that Jesus was Lord and Caesar is not. What is it that enables perseverance through persecution unto death? Well, in the case of the earlier Christians, it was a knowledge of a Christ bigger than Caesar. It was knowledge that the Christ's deliverance is bigger than anything that Caesar could do to them. I want to steal an illustration from a sermon that I heard recently on 2 Timothy. Watchman Nee was a Christian minister in China during the 20th century. In 1952, Watchman Nee was imprisoned for his faith, and he remained imprisoned until he died in prison 20 years later. When Watchman Nee's grandniece came to the prison after his death, she was given a piece of paper that Watchman Nee had left under his pillow. And on that piece of paper, Watchman Nee had written this. He said, Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because I believe in Jesus Christ. Signed, Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was empowered by the Holy Spirit to persevere through suffering because the Christ was big in his eyes. He knew all that it meant for Jesus to be the one delivering king in history. Let me close with this. For two years, I had the privilege of living in the United Kingdom while working for a church in Liverpool. Uh, one evening, a group of us at the church were hanging out after church, I believe, and as you do in the United Kingdom, we were, or I should say, the others were discussing the closest that we had ever gotten to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. One woman in the group told a story about how when she was a young girl, she had the privilege to go see the queen. Not in sort of a one-on-one -on -one audience, but just as part of a crowd, sort of see the queen as she walked to her car. And this woman said that as a little girl, she was pondering the night before what color she should do her nails. And she said she had this inexplicable feeling that the queen would appreciate if she were to paint her nails lilac. And so she did. Well, to her joy and astonishment the next morning, as she went to see the queen, uh, she found that Her Majesty Elizabeth II was clothed in a beautiful lilac dress matching her nails. And as she told that part of the story, all the girls in the group got really excited and I don't know whether it's because I'm a man or because I'm American, but I, don't, I didn't quite share in that moment. But what was very clear to me is that this young girl took delight in making her every decision revolve around the queen because the queen was so great in her eyes. Brothers and sisters, 
How great is King Jesus in your eyes? Do you see him as the singular hero of all history? Do you revere him as the focal point of God's redemption story? Do you worship him as the deliverer from all your eternal problems? Do you love him as the incomparable ruler of all things? Do you see him as the Christ? Saints, it's our privilege, it's our joy when we see Jesus clearly to cause every part of our lives to revolve around him. Let's pray that he would be big in our eyes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus the Christ. God, would you give us eyes to see him in all of his saving and reigning glory, that we might worship and love and adore him with every part of our being. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.